Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. I'm Becky Gallagher, a third year joint degree student with the Yale School of Management and the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. I'm here today with Jenny McIver. Thanks so much for joining us. Jenny is a graduate of the Yale School of Forestry and the Vermont Law School. Now she serves as Vice President Environmental at Mid-American Energy Company, a private gas and electric utility. Jenny, you focus mostly on compliance. Can you give us a sense of what the most important issues are that you're facing in your department today? Sure. Thanks, Becky. I would say the the most important issues that uh, my company is dealing with today are the the changing pace of environmental regulations affecting the energy industry. And most notably would be the brand new uh, clean power plan that would regulate carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. But there are a number of other issues that we're balancing along with the clean power plan, including water regulations and the changing face of uh, endangered species regulations as we build more renewable uh, facilities across the state of Iowa. Sure. Actually, that last point is something that I think people don't hear about too much. Could you go into a little bit more depth? Sure, about the the species issues in particular. So Mid-American Energy is uh, a significant player in renewable energy uh, space. We have uh, a large portfolio of wind uh, turbines across the state of Iowa, and in fact, By the end of 2016, when we complete our most recent build-out of wind, we will have more than 4,000 megawatts of wind installed in Iowa, owned and operated by MidAmerican. Wow. It is a large fleet. It will be more than 2,000 turbines. And we've done this over about a decade. And over that same time period, we've seen uh, guidance from the Fish and Wildlife Service change over time as risks are more understood about the interaction of uh, species with wind turbines in particular. So, of course, the, the focus has lately been on birds, including eagles and bats, mm. and how they may be impacted by wind facilities. So my job lately has been working with the Fish and Wildlife Service to design a program that will address across the entire portfolio a conservation plan for protected species in Iowa. And when you say across the entire portfolio, does that also include wind turbines that are outside of Iowa or sister companies of your parent company? Yeah, great question. It does not. (laughs) This particular program will focus just on the turbines that are owned by Mid-American Energy. So that would be the the 2,000 turbines in Iowa. But as you pointed out, Mid-American is uh, part of a larger energy company family owned by Berkshire Hathaway Energy. And our sister utilities also own and operate renewable facilities in a number of states. So again, the program I'm working on is just for the state of Iowa, but certainly the lessons we learn there can be applied to other states and facilities that the broader company owns. That makes sense. So turning to the Clean Power Plan, to what extent are you coordinating with these sister companies? And what's, what's kind of been your strategy for understanding the plan and beginning to formulate state implementation plan for Iowa. Yeah, fascinating uh, materials kind of going on over the last 18 months here. So the companies um, that are part of Berkshire Hathaway Energy, in addition to MidAmerican, include Pacificorp, based in the Northwest, NV Energy, based in Nevada, and then Berkshire Hathaway Energy Renewables, which has a number of uh, renewables and gas plants located across the U.S. And between these four companies, we operate in about 16 states. So some of us overlap in those states, 
but it's a, a pretty significant portion of the country, um, a number of power plants that will be affected by the Clean Power Plan. So when the rule was first proposed uh, last year, in the middle of uh, 2014, we drew the companies together, their environmental leaders, and we uh, ran, ran through the plan together. We read everything in a very short time to, un to try to understand what the impacts would be on a state-by-state -state and company-by-company -company basis. And over the course of the public comment period, each operating company, so of those four that I mentioned, each company submitted a separate set of comments um, instead of one broad set of comments submitted by the holdings company. And we did that because the impacts of the Clean Power Plan will vary between states, of course. Since the comment period closed, that coordination has continued, but it we are taking the approach again of a state-by-state -state look because uh, each state will have um, different limits to meet. They have a different set of uh, facilities that will be impacted and different ways that they could potentially comply with the rule. So we share information, um, lessons learned, sort of how are we gleaning information from various groups across the country. But for the most part, each operating company is responsible for working with their local stakeholders and regulators to provide information and help uh, try to inform how the state implementation plans could be developed. Sure. And so in the context of Iowa, are you beginning to make decisions about some of the major things in the clean power plan, like mass versus rate-based, or whether or not you'll participate in the CEIP, the Early Action Clean Energy Program? Those are the cutting-edge questions that we're all wrestling with right now. In fact, we just had some meetings about this in Iowa on Monday. Um, Iowa has been hosting a series of stakeholder meetings, pulling together the regulated parties, environmental groups, um, a variety of economic development agencies, uh, municipalities, to try to answer those questions. And Iowa has not yet made any of those kinds of decisions. And I think one of the reasons is because it's early yet in the process. Um, today, of course, we still have the public comment period ongoing for the proposed federal plan, which includes the model trading rules for the rate and mass scenarios. So I think most states, will, and likely Iowa, will wait until the federal plan and model rules are finalized next summer before they really make a final decision on which um, approach to take to compliance. But I can say that states are asking questions like what would influence the decision to go rate or mass and what kinds of things should they be considering as they make some of those decisions. And those could include, um, for instance, the impact to economic development. So under a mass-based scenario, if you put a cap on emissions and you forecast incorrectly, do you then ultimately limit your ability to grow and increase the amount of electric load you have in your state? And then if you do, are there ways to fix that in a mass-based plan down the road? And of course, we're in 2015 today, but we're trying to pre predict out 15 years into the future, knowing that that administrative burden would be significant. Under a rate-based scenario, um, the administrative costs of designing the program might be more challenging than a mass-based program. We have a lot of experience with mass-based programs, such as the acid rain program, for example. But the rate-based system might provide states more flexibility uh, in addressing issues such as economic growth, and they provide uh, industry a bit more flexibility when we're looking at facilities in which we've just invested a significant amount of capital to control emissions under other Clean Air Act programs. So 
those are kind of the balancing acts, the, the early questions that are happening today. And I think uh, as we get more information from EPA on their guidance, on things like the Clean Energy Incentive Program and how some of those pieces might fit together, we'll use all of that information to make a final decision. But it's it's too early to tell at this point. Sure, yeah, it is early. From sort of the tenor of the conversations, is there a feeling in Iowa that no matter which way you go, if the Clean Power Plan is decided to be legal or um, is not struck down and it continues to be a, something that uh, is required, um, will it make a big difference? There's some sense that, well, under the Clean Power Plan, even under their stringent regulations, it's kind of following this business as usual track anyway. But my understanding is it's, it's pretty heterogeneous between states. For some states, it will be easy to make their commitments. And for others, it will be very difficult. For Iowa, where does Iowa fall? I would say Iowa is somewhere in the middle. Um, when we first looked at the proposed rule, uh, the lift was not significant. In fact, Iowa probably could have complied with the proposed standards from day one without significant changes. But uh, in the, the time that EPA took to evaluate the public comments and make adjustments in the final rule, the final standards did change. Uh, on paper, they didn't appear to change significantly for Iowa, but how, what tools we could use to comply and how we get there has certainly changed. So looking at the final rule as it currently exists today, uh, I would say Iowa has a fairly modest um, lift ahead of them. It's not impossible. Certainly, uh, MidAmerican will comply with the rule, will we'll develop compliance plans that uh, make sense for the company and for our customers, but it is not uh, an easy road. Um, and, and again, the magnitude of the changes that are required and the the financial impacts will depend on whether the state goes rate or mass, um, what are the trading opportunities uh, available to the utility companies, and sort of all of those details that we're still working out clearly. But either the rate or the mass-based standard, they both will require significant changes for the industry in Iowa, and I would say largely across the entire com- country as well. That makes sense. So how has your FES degree helped you navigate this complex environmental uh, regulation? MidAmerican still has a decent amount of coal as part of its portfolio, and I imagine there are some traditionalists inside of the utility. Has your FES cred helped you uh, balance these competing objectives? You know, I think it has, honestly. You know, clearly the the law degree, which is not specific to Yale, but has been a huge help in in knowing how to read regulations <laughs> and understanding the history behind the Clean Air Act, for example. But the value that my uh, environmental management degree from FES brings is some of the the more policy driven aspects of what the environmental movement has been about and what some of these rules and regulations are looking to achieve. And I would say the um, the credibility of a school like the forestry school uh, has certainly helped um, provide um, credibility for myself as well in being a voice, an expert in um, trying to to move change within the company and say, you know, these are these align these these goals align with some of our environmental perspectives as as a as a utility company and as the larger Berkshire Hathaway Energy family. Um, so I think that the, the the unique aspect of of being part of the broader Yale community, but also really digging into how does environmentalism work in the private sector and even in a business, um, has certainly I think um, helped me move 
uh, forward through Mid-American fairly quickly um, with my, uh, my eight years there. And also, I think, has created a certain amount of respect from my colleagues as well. Sure. And so on the flip side, what, what news can you tell us from Nebraska? Being in New Haven and studying renewables, often the story is constrained to the New York Rev and California and Arizona and Hawaii. We don't really hear as much about wind and the exciting stuff and the exciting problems that folks in the Midwest are facing. So yeah, yeah what, what defines the issues there? Yeah, great, great question. Um, I think it's been really interesting to, to move back to the Midwest over the last several years and see how the environmental conversation has changed, particularly with issues such as the Keystone XL pipeline. Um, clearly, that was uh, a big issue in Nebraska and kind of interesting to, to watch unfold and, and watch a grassroots organization figure out how to tell a story and get their voices heard. Um, so, you know, that's just one facet of sort of the environmental movement in the Midwest. I would say other other issues um, that are coming to the forefront, clearly on the renewables front, as you mentioned, um, Iowa and Nebraska are an interesting contrast. And part of the reason has to do with how their utilities are set up. Nebraska is a public power state. And so utilities, because they are quasi-governmental organizations, cannot take advantage of the tax credit that a business like Berkshire Hathaway Energy has been able to utilize to install such a significant wind portfolio in a state right next door. Um, uh, Iowa's example, I think, is often held up in a state like Nebraska to say we should be able to do the same thing. Um, And they, they have a much smaller portfolio in Nebraska. So Um, I think Nebraskans are, and other Midwesterners, are figuring out, hey, there are more creative ways that we could partner with uh, folks who are interested in buying renewables, folks who are interested in building here with such great resources. But there are unique challenges as well, and they're mostly tied to the land and how uh, folks who have been in the Midwest for so long and have worked the land um, really understand uh, issues a lot differently than, say, out on the coasts, where you know you can you can sell an environmental issue because it's good for the environment, but when you try to uh, to share the same message in the Midwest, you, you need to learn how to change that conversation and tie it back to to generation after generation and how long people have worked here and and know the land and know the water resources. And it's been really fascinating to watch that conversation change over the just, like I said, just the last several years um, and see that, you know, new wind projects are getting cited in the Midwest in areas they've never been before. That's great. And did you hear a similar kind of conversation around hydraulic fracturing, which has similar issues around land and land use and exploitation? A bit. Uh, uh, I would say that hydraulic fracturing, um, you know, the is not as big of a, uh, a factor in Iowa or Nebraska or even Illinois as you would see uh, maybe in the, in the Dakotas, for example, where some of that activity is happening. More the conversation is about um, appropriate siting for those types of uh, industries and infrastructure and recognizing that some of the ecosystems uh, are unique um, to the region, to the country, to the world. And if they're damaged, we can never repair them. They're that sensitive. So the conversation has been more about reasonable outcomes and uh, making wise decisions, not just for today, but for the future as well. So it's really more of the sustainability kind of conversation than it is about should we do this or should we not do it at all. Thanks. Um, and so wrapping up, I'm curious about your experience as a leader in this very large company and 
what strategies or what resources have you found that have enabled you to make a really big impact? What works for you at utilities and in the energy field? Great question. And a hard one to answer sometimes. I think, you know, based on my experience, what I found um, has helped me make a difference has been my connection to a community like Yale and knowing that there are resources um, who can help answer those questions and lend expertise to, um, to pretty key issues for our industry, but also um, being well-versed in and passionate about particular issues that mean a lot to me individually and then to the company as well. So one of the reasons um, that I, I enjoy working for Mid-American so much is we have, uh, a, we call it the environmental respect policy. And we have a whole list of, we've defined what respect means. And if you put me on the spot, I would never be able to tell you what it means today. But if folks are interested, you can find it on our website. But what it says is, um, you know, we want to go above and beyond. We're here to, of course, meet our compliance obligations. But we recognize that we are here for the long term. And so we want to be good stewards of the environment. We want to use the resources wisely. And that really spoke to me strongly. And so finding ways to incorporate those messages into um, directives that I, I issue as policy directives or um, ways we should or shouldn't do business has been useful. And then I think also being a problem solver rather than just you know shaking your finger and saying, you can't do it that way. Learning how to find ways to say, but you can do it this way and still meet your goal and protect the environment at the same time. That has been really key to being successful in my role and also um, gaining support across the company. Finally, as a graduating student, I'm curious if you rewound to you as a graduating student from, from Vermont Law and FES, what did you not know then that you know now, <laughs> that you wish you had known? Everything, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was, a, it was a scary time. You know, I think the... What I wish I, I had known was um, better networking skills. The biggest challenge I had when I graduated is that I intended all along to come back to the Midwest. And, you know, obviously when you're in the grad school kind of world, uh, there's a heavy emphasis on networking, but it tends to be local. And so the biggest um, challenge I had to overcome was finding places where I could meet up with colleagues and find like-minded people who were working on the kinds of issues I wanted to work on and start getting, getting myself known and getting my, my resume out there and trying to find, find a job. So that was, it was like walking into a bit of a black hole. Um, so, you know, those skills and uh, those folks and just trying to, trying to tee up anything before you leave this community that's already so well-connected and have even just one or two places to knock on the door if you are going, you know, a far distant from Yale. Um, I think that would have been very helpful. Great. Well, thanks so much for answering my questions. We really appreciate having you on the air. Thanks, Becky. The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.